no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World Halloween Edition. I am I am terrified. Okay, As I'm not, you I'm not be. really not really terrified. No, nah, I'm very excited. It's uh the temperatures are getting colder, the days are getting shorter, uh the you know, the threat to the end of civilization is getting bigger, you know. Everything all you the, could ask all for. The good, right? Right, yeah, all the good signs. So how have you been? I've been well. Yeah. I'm a little sad fall is already coming to a close. Uh we got about two and a half weeks of it. Yeah, it was really brief. It's cold already. Yeah. Um I enjoy this this is this like uh this is the start of a season of a lot of fun activities. <clears throat> Because it goes Halloween, my daughter's birthday, oh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh-huh. you know, everything's just like back to back, my other daughter's birthday. Uh, so there's just a lot of fun activities that we're starting, and today I feel like it's the official opening day of celebration season. Yes, yes. Well, and I'll annoy a lot of people by saying that I'm happy to say that baseball's over. Oh. Because baseball is not played on ice, so therefore it, yeah. can, it can be out of the way and that would be fine. Yeah. So I've just... Oh, Half the people who are listening just right. hit stop, yeah. and they will now, never listen to us Now again. everybody's <laughs> attention's turned to hockey, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. The whole world is all about the hockey. Well, uh, so there's a, a new player on the Chicago Blackhawks, uh, the you know racist Chicago Blackhawks, because they have that logo and everything. Um, but he's this 18-year-old, really good new player, but he's 18. Yeah. So, like, you know, he's playing professional hockey. He can't go get a beer in Chicago. Right. It's just, it's a really interesting thing. And he's actually living with the family of one of the other players. So he's got a minder, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> arguably the best player on the Nationals yesterday, or I guess he's still on the Nationals, but who just won the World Series, is 21 years old. Nobody yeah. and I were talking about, like, what we were doing at 21 years old was not... Not winning the World Not winning World Championships. <laughs> Yeah, at 18, I was definitely not a professional hockey player. Yeah. It just wasn't in the cards. I could have been if I applied myself. Yeah. It's really, it's a failure on your part (laughs) that you weren't winning the World Series at 21. I was told I could be whatever I wanted to be. They were lying. You know, it's it's an unfortunate thing because I think there is a a certain amount of like, oh, you can do anything if you just like want it hard enough. I am not going to ever play in the NBA no matter how much I wanted to uh, because I'm just like, uh, uh, vertically challenged, as they yeah. say. So, anyway. And anyway, what about all those people that are successful that don't really want to do it? Yeah, exactly. I It, it should, because isn't there an inverse principle where if you want something badly enough and then if you don't want something badly enough, yeah. it won't happen? Yeah. I don't think that works either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like my dog to live forever. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Sad to say. Yeah, there's got to be, the, I don't know, is that where... Uh, you can apply like the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours principle is like, you can want, you can have anything you want, but you also have to put in a heck of a lot of yeah, time. You have and, to put in the time to, to get it down. And well, you got to hit a certain window of life and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
How many things do you think you've done for 10,000 hours? Like if you had to make a list. Oh, that's a good question. That's an interesting. Yeah. Um, Sleep, I would imagine. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> if I had like 10,000, if I've clocked 10,000 driving hours. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm thinking of like, you know, uh, certainly hours of reading uh, communication theory. Right. <laughs> Just kind of a, a painful, dorky admission, but there you go. How many full days is 10,000 hours? Let's do that. Are you gonna do? Are you gonna do math? Four hundred and sixteen days, full days, full days, like twenty-four hour days. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's hard to pull that off. Yeah, that's so. a lot. So, what's new in your media world? Well, uh, it's been interesting to listen to the uh, the deposition of Mark Zuckerberg round two. Yes. Who's back? Because uh, because of Libra. Uh huh. Cryptocurrency, uh-huh. what could go wrong Nothing. with Facebook creating its own <laughs> currency? <laughs> right, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, it's, you know, it's it's interesting how many people are just not even, you know, because at the university here we work with a lot of students are just sort of like not in the Facebook sphere. Right. They're, it's not part of their ecosystem. I mean, it is sort of, but it's somebody else's ecosystem right. that they occasionally visit. So, you know, you go to their sites and they haven't posted anything since they were like a sophomore in high school. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas the rest of us think it's kind of, you know, the the older generation's common currency. And it's interesting so. to yeah, to talk to students about it because they do feel disconnected from it. Mm-hmm. Like they're sort of an out of sight, out of mind. And I think there's often times students will say, Well, we don't use the platform anymore, therefore the problem will just cease to exist once we're older, you know. Right. And I, and I don't th- I think that's highly undervaluing the amount of power that Facebook has mm-hmm. in many ways, because sure, you might have left Facebook, but Facebook owns Instagram and right, WhatsApp. Yeah. And I mean, you're, you're, you're probably still a part of the, uh, the ecosystem in some respect. Right. It's, it's, you know, when, uh, people talk about like how hard it is to leave Google. I mean, if you were to not use anything, Google yeah, means that you're giving up. Google Maps and YouTube and all kinds of tools to be, you know, to get out of that space. Mm-hmm. It's just really hard to do. Well, let, let me ask you from your professional perspective of having the finger on the pulse of this, what do you think are Zuckerberg's like strongest and weakest cases for why he's doing what he's doing with mm. Facebook? Is that a fair question? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> so when Zuckerberg did his first deposition, whenever that was, on Cambridge Analytica, he kind of came across to me like a scared dog, you know, like it was just, and then his tone has changed so much. Like this one, he seems to come out way much more on the offensive. Mm-hmm. And he gave like a speech at Georgetown like a couple days before that. And that's what really confused me. My best theory uh, because because now what he is he is toting and this is so uh, to give some context uh, the mate so he was brought in for deposition around Libra uh, the cryptocurrency that Facebook is presenting uh, as a new solution uh, obviously federal government is going to have concerns with the currency they don't have any control over that's um, <clears throat> on a global scale but a lot of the the conversation in the deposition. Uh, was around political ads, yeah, uh, and what that means, and free speech versus paid speech, 
and concerns, particularly around the most recent ad that's been talked about a lot, is uh, the Donald Trump campaign had an ad that in- included false information about Hunter Biden uh, and uh YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook have all did not agree to take the ad down. Right. Uh, Facebook's took it most of the heat. Uh, CNN didn't run the ad. Uh, I think uh, other broadcast channels did. So, you know, this has been, been an interesting debate. And he's asked questions about, you know, should they fact check political ads? Facebook does fact check other ads. So if it's reported as, a, as an ad that has false information... Facebook will check it, except for politicians, but it holds to a different standard. And they basically argue that um, they should, politicians should be held to a standard in which, you know, the public gets to see whatever message they are trying to put out there, whether it's true or false. Mm-hmm. And the public should be able to judge. So, so, so these, are, these are the most complex things. And Facebook basically said, we don't want to be the people who are deciding what's true or false. Uh-huh. And so this comes back to my theory. My theory is he's got enemies on both sides of the aisle. Uh, Democrats want Facebook to be stricter in what they allow and uh, not allow as much, you know, activity that incites violence uh, or, um, you know, weaponizes certain people. Um, and then on the other side of it, Republicans think that Facebook is biased against them and censors uh, Republican messages. Mm-hmm. So, no, he doesn't seem to have a lot of friends, as far as I can tell. He just has a lot of money and yeah. power. <laughs> right. And so I think to some degree, so he's coming out and saying, like, we don't want to be the people who do it, which I think is sort of like his strategy, in my mind, is he's daring Congress to make a decision for how they should act. Yeah. And it's a good business strategy if you know how well Congress is working right now. Right. Yeah. Because if you, you know, if your strategy is let, let Congress figure this out, um, we're at a point in time where you were just not seeing major legislation really get through. So. Right. We're distracted with other things. Yeah. So that's my theory. So let, let me throw this in just to see how you would contrast it. So. Uh, we're, we're talking here on Halloween, which is Thursday. Uh, yesterday, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey announced that the company would no longer accept political ads. Correct. Which is basically, if you think of this as kind of like a grudge match between Twitter and Facebook as a, as a, it's a move. Yeah. It's a big move. But, but here's the difference between the two. Yeah. In my, in my mind, uh, Twitter is still giving an incredible megaphone to people. Right. And so whether they are for or against paid political ads, obviously anything organic that comes out of these same people's mouths, whether it's true or false, is not being censored. Right. And they they also have, I mean, you know, uh, you can rep- report, there, there are people who have been banned for their types of actions on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And politicians have not been held to that standard. So Twitter has, in some respects, um allowed politicians to also do things on their platform that they probably wouldn't allow a regular person to do. Right. So there's a, and I think you you made an important clarification about the difference between advertising and just content, right? Right. Which is very similar, I think, in terms of trying to keep that straight to trying to keep straight that these are privately held companies. 
and our understanding of the relate culturally of the relationship between public and private and who gets to regulate that right and determine what kind of communication happens as a result is pretty far away from the public's understanding and as much as we like to think that facebook and twitter are similar they are in many ways equal opposites too because twitter is a seemingly open platform i can go to people's page unless they've made it private and i can see the posts that they've done um on the other hand facebook when we're talking about paid messages, paid advertising, we're talking about incredibly micro-targeted messages that might only be seen by a few people. Right. Right. So if you are targeting advertising, um, say at, uh, you know, um, swing states uh, to populations that are more most vulnerable to these types of messages. Um, that's a big issue. I mean, we're talking about the exact strategy that Cambridge Analytica took, yeah, you know, yeah. which is which is targeting specific messages at, at specific populations, um, and that's 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 vastly different than what what Twitter is used for. So yeah, I do think it's. I mean, it's certainly interesting that Twitter not only announced that, also announced it uh, right before uh, Facebook made their quarterly earnings. You know. Uh, call, mm-hmm. uh, which, by the way, Facebook revenue is still just continuing to climb. Right, you know, it's right. it's amazing. Yeah, and actually, so. after we'll talk about this in a second. After the announcement of Facebook news, yeah, that it actually went up. The uh, before we get too far away from it, the the two things that were tweeted by Dorsey about this. Uh, in relationship to their policy, he, he tweeted, we'll share the final policy by November 15th, including a few exceptions. For example, ads in support of voter registration will still be allowed. We'll start enforcing our new policy on November 22nd to provide current advertisers a notice period before this change goes into effect. And then he adds as a final note, this is not about free expression. This is about paying for reach. And paying to increase the reach of political speech has significant ramifications that today's democratic infrastructure may not be prepared to handle. Yeah, and that's a direct... Under, understatement yeah, of the exactly. year, right? And that's a, that's a direct response to Zuck, who's like just been out there, you know, yeah. trying to make the, the we're trying to protect speech. And, and I, to defend the move, I do think, um, banning a specific type of industry advertisement sets precedent for things that we don't know how that ends. Like it's, it's, it seems right in some respects, but if you ban one, then you sort of open the door for banning all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting. But I mean, good for, you know, good for, I, I don't know. It's good for Twitter for making that decision. You're still giving amplification to a lot of noise out there. Right, you know, right. I don't, I don't think too many people are rah rahing uh, the type of speech that Twitter does allow uh, on a day-to-day basis. Right. So but you know, and this, this one, one positive. Yeah. Movement. There was a, uh, this became when I was, uh, talking about issues like this recently in classes, I kind of tried to think about the question also about sort of like, you know, taking a, a larger step back to sort of like the, the ethical culture that we live in and the way it, uh, the way it treats free expression, the yeah. way it treats, um, what you can and can't say. And, you know, there are uh, people who adopt, you know, absolutist positions, except for, of course, the endanger and direct violence inciting speech. Right. 
which I think there is a, actually a subcategory of violence inciting speech that, that we always need to be careful of speech that attempts to remove the humanity of another group, mm. because that's in, in everything that I've ever read about kind of the road to uh, genocide. One of the biggest steps is when propaganda starts basically uh, treating another group of people as if they're less than human, as if they're animals, as if they're, you know, cockroaches was the term that was used in Rwanda the whole time to identify the group. And, and that creates space inside of people's heads to uh, to think of them as them, not us. Yeah. And once you can start thinking of them as them, and then they're not, they're just not, they're not, they're not only not us, they're not human. And yeah. therefore... You know, and that that gives people license to sort of do other things. But but the other way of thinking about the question is to actually think about what does uh, the idea of supporting free speech actually mean? Like, and, and raising the question as a, as the opposite of what you think would be sort of the naive position that you know, of course, our First Amendment rights are important and to be protected. You know, maybe not. I mean, maybe there. And I'm not suggesting that that they be curtailed, but that we have actually a, a serious conversation about what are the consequences of having that, and at the same time having a communication environment that is so easily, uh, so you know, that that does a really good job of convincing people to believe things that just there is no evidence for whatsoever. Yeah. And you know, at that point, how do you establish a certain like response? Like you don't really you can't really say to somebody, hey. You know, it's your responsibility to know this. It's your responsibility to uh, to understand the consequences of your decisions when the decision starts affecting other people. So if you were to say that uh, vaccines cause autism, therefore you're not getting your kids vaccinated, right, that affects the other people around the kid. And that's how you end up with measles outbreaks and with people dying because, the, you know, because we're not immune, right, as a culture. and. Um, you know, and again, this, it's based on a belief system, but, and the belief system is like racked with misinformation. So, um, so, the, so it becomes a really interesting, weird question is, you know, do we, are we, are we capable of being responsible enough to have the kind of freedom of expression we have, or are its negative consequences something we need to figure out how to address in some way? Yeah. You know, it's just kind of a, a, a complicated kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think this is. This is nothing new to say. I probably shouldn't even take the time to say it, but folks writing the Constitution could not have foreseen what today's media landscape right, would look right. like when they were, you know, thinking about the limit, you know, what what free speech particularly meant. And I, un- I understand there's lots of arguments for how the Constitution was, re- you know, written in a way that was meant to be uh, incredibly interpretive, but. Right. Know. It's 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 hard to imagine in 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 a world where instantaneous messages can be hyper targeted at specific populations. Right. Uh, who by, who will then have a a tendency to respond to them in yes ways that are really convincing to invest in. Right. So. Right. Yeah. So uh, there was I, I was going to mention just as kind of a sidelight because it's something that I always found kind of an interesting way of charting this kind of stuff out. Um, this is from a September twenty nineteenth. Um, uh, article by uh, Claire Wardle, uh, where she was talking, uh, the title of it is Misinformation Has Created a New World Disorder. And this was um, connected to some other reports, but one of the things that I found interesting about it that's always kind of, I think, important to think about is the relationship between falseness and the intent to harm, which are you know kind of two different categories. Cause it, and, and falseness in the sense of, you know, you could be wrong, you could be perpetuating misinformation. 
So, but there are, so there are these three categories here and just to kind of like break this down and there's a, there's a gorgeous Venn diagram version of this, but basically in, in one corner you have misinformation, which are unintentional mistakes such as inaccuracies and captions, date, statistics, or translations, or when satire is taken seriously. And so that would be my gorilla channel moment, mm. <laughs> right? Okay. On the other ex extreme, you have malinformation. So that was a misinformation. Uh, to the other extreme, you have malinformation, and this is under the notion of intent to harm. Deliberate publication of private information for personal or corporate rather than public interest, such as revenge porn, deliberate change of context, date, time, or, uh, or of genuine content. So that would be malinformation. And then there's this overlap between the two, and that's a disinformation, right? So this is, and I think a lot of times these terms are kind of seen as, as interchangeable, but there are some important differences. So disinformation is fabricated or deliberately manipulated content, intentionally created conspiracy theories or rumors. So that's kind of the juxtaposition of misinformation and malinformation, the juxtaposition of falseness and the intent to harm. Um, which I think creates, you know, kind of a really interesting way of kind of breaking things down, accounting for errors, and then also trying to enter the conversation of, of intentionality, right? What are people intending to do when they're communicating things in a particular way? Um, because, of course, you know, when we're thinking about ways of communicating information about the world that are important for people to function in a democracy, you know, the intentions of the New York Times versus the intentions of you know, somebody who is creating a pizza gate or some other kind of, you know, intention, harmfully intended, uh, or what would be under the category of disinformation, you know, obviously have different intents. And, and so, you know, again, think, so one's, if you're living in a culture like the one that we're in here in the U.S., where First Amendment rights are, you know, pretty held in pretty high regard, then the question is, what do you do, right? What do you do? to the internet, to the, to the permeability of the boundary, and what do you do about the people who are intending to uh, confuse and cause harm and stuff yeah. like that, particularly if they can make money doing it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's where it gets to be really kind of problematic. Um, someone connected to this and going backwards a step is Facebook News. Let's hear about it. Okay. So uh, Facebook News, which was actually announced on October 25th, uh, I mean, there's been you know, kind of rumbling about it. But uh, uh, on a pace in uh, Facebook's newsroom uh, by Campbell Brown, who is the VP of Global News Partnerships, and uh, the way it's described, uh, there's a justification first um, that's put down and it says, journalism plays a critical role in our democracy when news is deeply reported and well-sourced. It gives people information they can rely on. When it's not, we lose an essential tool for making good decisions. And then down a little bit, today we're starting to test Facebook News, a dedicated place for news on Facebook to a subset of people in the U.S. News gives people more control over the stories they see and the ability to explore a wider a range of their news their news interests directly with the Facebook app. It also highlights the most relevant national stories of the day. So, um, of course, so this this is announced, and you know, basically, Facebook has to address the fact that when you ask a group of people where do you get your news, a lot of people will say Facebook, right? Um, not acknowledging Facebook doesn't make news, yeah. right? Facebook is an <laughs> aggregator and a coordinator and a um, an exhibitor, but they're not a producer. 
So they, they kind of play a different role. Um, and that, you know, that creates some really interesting potential problems with, you know, where they position, depending on what they decide to include and exclude from the sources they're going to be paying attention to. And of course, part of the controversy was that among the sources, uh, the, you know, the usual suspect sources, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, was Breitbart, Breitbart News, as being one of the sources that they were going to connect into this network. And that raised a lot of eyebrows and caused a lot of consternation because it's like, Breitbart, really? You know, uh, an organization that's kind of known for playing fast and loose with things for particularly deployed political reasons. Um, something one could occasionally accuse the New York Times of doing or the Washington Post, but it's not their yeah. it's not their intent. It's not their it's not their sort of mission is to perpetuate, you know, a, a particular um, point of view. You know, on the other hand, the point of view that they are perpetuating, you know, does exist in the political spectrum and exists in the world. And that's something, again, that needs to be kind of thought through carefully uh, as Facebook moves into this. So uh, to what extent do you think it will the just the mere existence of this would get somebody out of their uh, bubble of information versus just. Uh, clamp it down more. That is an interesting question. I because I don't. I, I think that um, I, I, you know, there's a lot of arguments about bubbles, and of course, a lot of cautions about being careful not to seclude yourself in a bubble because then you're not allowing your ideas to be criticized and rethought, which is an important part of the process. Um, I actually think that 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 bubble process is an imp one important function of. That, that, that we benefit from a great deal because of social media and the interconnectedness we have, which is to be able to understand what are the reasons why you believe what you believe, mm. right? Um, because you hear or to from, enter a bubble that you never would have had access to. Yeah, you could do. Yeah, you could do that too. You could enter. You could get into the sphere of like somebody else's reality altogether. Um, and I think that rather than saying that there shouldn't be bubbles or people shouldn't pay attention to bubbles or something like that, you just have to recognize when you're inside and when yeah. you're not, right? You need to address the fact that, that you know, you're listening to somebody who by and large agrees with you but may have a different strategy or a different approach. It's like, you know, I, when I was thinking about this idea, I was thinking about it's kind of like listening to the debates among the Democratic candidates about health care, right? They're all, you know, they're kind of in the same bubble, more or less, you know, with within depending on how big you want to draw the bubble, but they've got, you know, different ways that they think that you can approach the issue. Mm. And, you know, that, that again, the benefit of that would be that it questions maybe the tactics that you use, but maybe not the, you know, the overall strategy you have in place, you know, what, uh, versus in uh, whatever system you want to argue for how it's going to work. So what about you? What do you think about, uh, do you find yourself enmeshed in bubbles and not realize it? Or do you feel like you pretty much always know when you're... I don't think I realized how much... Well, I mean, how much of a bubble I was in, particularly in Twitter. So, whereas in a platform like Facebook, I've got multiple social circles that sort of intersect there. Family, friends, coworkers. Whereas Twitter... I tend to follow things I'm interested in, but maybe less so people I know uh, in real life, mm -hmm. IRL. Meaning that my normal social circle is much more likely to be diverse in thought 
than say the people I just opt into listening to. And um, because of this, I mean, this is a, a major reason for why I have effectively left Twitter. It's just because I felt like I watched the, the conversation turn at some point in time where it became very centric towards, you know, a specific type of of message or tone or whatever. I just sort of, you know, it was weird to watch my entire timeline go a certain direction. And then also realize that it was only, you know, it was mine. Like, whereas if I had, if I had started Twitter all over again and just followed NBA beat writers, I would have had like a totally different experience. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's hard to get out of it. It's like once you're in the bubble mm-hmm. in something like that, I mean, short of rebooting your entire account, uh, it's really hard to, to, uh, recorrect the, the, the direction of the, the algorithms current, I guess. Right. Yeah. I, in, in that way, kind of, you know, the, the, uh, and this is something they're acknowledging in this Facebook announcement is that as individuals, we have a lot of control over what we are and aren't getting right. exposed to. And in Twitter, it's completely dependent on who you decide to follow. Yes. Right. And so then the question becomes, you know, do you, how do you, how do you follow who you follow? Yeah. I think one thing that, that is a little bit of a corrective, although it's still contextualized differently, is that people will repost things that are out of that sphere that you disagree with. Right. And then they'll, They'll repost that, and then they'll add their. I don't know. I don't see it happening that much. <clears throat> I don't. I don't see a lot. I see a lot of reposting of stuff people want to like. It's like a repost is to like yes and it maybe at most, yeah. uh, but it's very yeah. rarely coming outside of my circle. Like I, I, I don't feel like I see a lot of my yeah. timeline that seems totally from a world I would have never heard from before. Yeah, yeah. But again, it could just. I mean, I. I say all that saying, I don't blame the platform. I blame the way that I used the platform once upon a time, right. you know, and it's totally my fault for setting it up the way it is. So. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, my existential, my, my, my parallel existential crisis of the moment is, you know, why is it that I find collections of car crash videos so fascinating? Yeah. Because there's something, there's something really, you know, it's like, you know, when you drive by an accident and you stare out the window, it's just like that for a solid half hour, you know? <laughs> of people making questionable decisions. Okay, so I want to use that as a transition to a question that you had. Okay, which one? Your tri- oh, you had some question. Oh, my trivia question for the day. Yeah, yeah. So, And this would be something uh, you can play uh, at home. Um, and I think it's an interesting question because I think it might be a little bit revealing about how we uh, end-bubble ourselves. Yeah. Is that a word, end-bubble? To, sure. to, yeah, okay. So, uh, so when we were talking about what we were going to do on the podcast today, I said, Hey, Adam. And you said, What? And I said, Hi, Ralph. How about if we, <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. Okay. So we're going to play this little game, which is, What are your three favorite places on the internet? And I'm not, you know, I didn't want to define it any more specifically than that, but just sort of leave that. So, so if you're listening, take a moment and think about what is your, third, second, and first favorite places on the internet. And then, of course, the discussion ensues as to why. So, Adam, I'm going to start with you. What's your third favorite place on the internet? Mm, um, my third favorite place on the internet is um, a subreddit called Watch People Die Inside. Ooh. 
Which so it, tell me about this. It's I don't just, know what this. It's just like catching it, it's little animated gifs or videos of videos that have caught somebody in a really like that moment when your face changes, whether it's embarrassment or shock, you know, or whatever, where you just realize that something's gone wrong. For some reason, you know. That, that's that's really good. It's really funny, too, because just a moment ago, it crossed my mind to say something about this, and I decided, nah, but you brought it up again, <laughs> which is this micro video of yeah. of uh, our fearless leader at that baseball game. Oh, yes. This, that was on there. Oh, yes. okay, yeah. That, I, th- I yeah. thought it would have to be. That, yes. He doesn't make too many appearances. It's kind of one of the nice things, but uh, but he did that one was, de- that, that, that's the exact moment, so... Trump at game five, four of the World Series getting booed. And once he realizes he's getting right. booed, that look on his face is watch people die inside. Like that sums it up. Uh, <laughs> there's a, there's a, kind of perfect because it did. As soon as yes, you said that, I'm like, oh, yeah. That's exactly it. Um, there's another subreddit that's similar. It's called Watch People Survive, uh-huh. which might be like, it might have some overlap with your car crash videos. Right. Uh, if you want to watch people survive, like almost, you know, pedestrians almost getting hit by cars yeah, or getting yeah. hit by cars and surviving. Yeah. I mean, that stuff's just, it's, it's crazy to watch, but I, I enjoy it cause I know the outcome. And so I feel a little bit better about yeah. watching the video. Well, so. the, yeah, the, the, I, I should add that perhaps part of the justification for it has to do with this whole idea of the, the visual stuff that we consume for entertainment purposes anyway, are all built on the perverse on the perversity of being able to see things you're not supposed to see. So, you know, as I'm talking to my class, I'm telling them, think about most of what you see. If you set aside the rare examples where somebody talks directly to you and you really can't include like Shakespeare soliloquies because they're not really talking to you. They're kind of talking to, you know, the, the muses and everything like that. Um, you're spying on people, right? You yeah. are, you are, you are at the position of the fourth wall. They're not acknowledging you, so they don't know that you're there, and you're spying on them, right? You're, you're, you're surveilling them, sort of. But it's like you're surveilling a performative version of them, because oftentimes yes. people are having conversations, knowing that part of the theater is people are watching, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's that's which really frustrates me. Oh my gosh, <laughs> we're all performing. It's all, all the time. yeah, it's all yeah. an act. Yeah. Okay, so I was going to add my third favorite. Okay, go. All right, my third favorite. This is going to be really dorky. You're going to be really disappointed. It's Wikipedia talk pages. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a good one. I, like I, I think answer. Wikipedia talk pages are really interesting. I don't spend enough time there. <clears throat> it's you have to kind of force yourself because yeah. you're kind of doing an archaeological kind of hidden, right? Yeah, because yeah. you have to, and and it's amazing, like. Um, when I've talked about this with people, they just don't, they never look at those, those two tabs. They never look at the history tab and the talk tab. So, uh, just in case that's never occurred to anybody who's listening on any Wikipedia page that you're reading through for whatever purposes you're reading through it for, there is a tab at the top that says talk and a tab at the top that says history. I believe these are still pretty universally available. And the history will give you basically an ability to click on every previous version of the page that you're wanting to look at. So you can see how it's evolved and changed over time. And the talk page is conversations amongst people about what should or shouldn't be on the page. What I've always found amazing about these things and why I find it really interesting is it's like watching, because if you think of if you think of the ideal sense of what Wikipedia it is, is, is trying to accomplish, then you're seeing that process take place, right? So in the old days of you know encyclopedic information 
you may have seen a list of names of who wrote the stuff, but that was about it. You really didn't have any insight into the process. And here, you're actually seeing the process deconstructively if you go into that talk page and look back through it of how they decided what to include and what not to include. And, of course, since it's a lot of it's in Internet speak, there's a lot of bluntness and, you know, an occasional really kind of rude interactions between people. So, But that would be my third favorite place because it helps to make this big, significant, elephant on the internet uh more comprehensible that's pretty good okay so what's your number two um okay so it's a tie it's a tie and well and these all kind of run together but so i'll make it but uh the website for space jam the movie (laughs) okay uh also bob dole's presidential campaign website both of which have not been updated since like 96 97 (laughs) um which gets to like my 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 real answer for something like that is archive.org, you know. So the the wayback machine uh-huh. of the web is super fun to me. Like I love the nostalgia of yeah. web. Can you explain what the wayback machine is for people? Yeah, so basically the wayback machine is um uh archive, the internet archive makes caches of websites um it's pretty decent at doing it particularly at really popular websites i mean the most popular websites are cached once a day uh others you know a couple times a month or smaller ones maybe every third month so it's it's uh varies on how how often you can get it but you can watch the evolution of the web take place um way way back uh, and i love i just love uh there was once upon a time, just this art form that was starting to take place, which was web design, you know, and everything from uh, web frames to moving background images to mouse trailers, like little animated stuff that followed your mouse on pages. It's like there was just like weird things people were building into their design processes. And I just think it's super fun to look at. But so like two websites that have never been updated since that period. So uh-huh. Space Jam's website and Bob Dole's campaign. <laughs> uh, so I just, I love being able to, you know, uh, play with the web in this day when we, we weren't quite sure what it was. And, uh, you know, we didn't even really have the ability to communicate back and forth on a single page or what we would consider what we, what we've coined as web 2.0 sort mm-hmm. of the ability to, edit in real time on, on, on in a single space. So that's what I feel like is a, is really fun for the internet. That's looking back. That's really, that, I have to go look at both of those now because I think that would be yeah. truly fascinating. Uh, we were watching, um, which one was it in? We were watching cause we've been, we've been doing our Halloween retro horror film watching thing. And, uh, we were watching a sequence and one film of people playing, Oh, it was in the thing. And uh, it was a computer chess game, like one of the real early computer chess games. Oh, that's fun. That uh, McCready, the Kurt Russell character, is playing on a computer, and he ends up getting checkmated, and then he dumps his bourbon into the computer. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just kind of a, a beautiful moment. Well, one thing that's been really sad is that, um, so do you remember Flash, Macromedia Flash? Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember how there used to be like websites that were pure Flash-based? Right, yeah. Well, the, in that, that era you know, which, which it was probably most prevalent between like 99 and 2004, probably like around that period of the web. It was not, it's not cached in the same way that like HTML is or, 
uh, JavaScript. So it's hard to pull up some of these like flash based websites. Mm-hmm. Um, but Java is easier to pull up. So like one, one, like there is a, a game that I would play on the internet probably right around the turn of the century um, that I can only play through, like I have to do like a Java update like every time I want to play it. But then I have to go to the, the internet archive to find like the old link to like wherever it was once posted. Uh-huh. But then I can play like a working version of this Java game online. It's so weird. That's, that's. So I have to go back in time yeah, with older technology to do it. I, it's really kind of amazing what a big footprint Macromedia had in its existence, which I guess they ceased to exist as a company. Uh, because yeah. it was bought by Adobe, Adobe in 2005. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I mean, things like Dreamweaver, which Dreamweaver, is still yeah. kind of hanging out out there. And Fireworks. Fusion, Fireworks, yeah. yeah. That's really, that's cool. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I'll, I'll, and we will get back to this in a moment, and you'll be not shocked. So Okay. Uh, so my number two is Snopes. Oh, okay. I love Snopes. That's it's interesting. It's always an adventure. Um because I think because I'd really like to believe that the mission of Snopes is something that might be able to actually stand in the face of misinformation and just make it easy for people. Um, one of the, you know, one of my first uh, times dealing with it a very long time ago was when a relative who was new to the Internet started perpetuating, you know, weird stories about, you know, rats and hantavirus and things like that. Things that were fairly common, you know, internet myths that were still in wide circulation. And so you could always point somebody back to Snopes where they've actually tracked down the truth or falsity of something like that. And uh, I always found that their, uh, their, their image resources just fascinating. And the way that they um, kind of legitimize um, being able to say to someone, this is a real thing or this is not a real thing, or it's still somewhere in the middle for one reason or another. Um, so, and I don't, I don't, you know, I mean, I think that they also have to be fact checked, right? Like everybody else. But I think that going in there and seeing it, you know, what sorts of, because it is also an insight into what sorts of like weird, not true things people are perpetuating. So, you know, I find it interesting on that basis too. Yeah. So that's a good one. Yeah. So what's your number one? Oh, so I think my number one. I, 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 by the way, I should share that this was a painful thing to watch Adam decide <laughs> because he has he would do a list of thirty if he could. But yeah, yeah, and that's why I, I kind of sigh putting this out there. Uh, I think Discogs is probably my number one. So Discogs is um, uh, it's like the Wikipedia for uh, music for, uh, for specifically for records. Yeah. Uh, so. It's super fun because you can learn so much information, not about about the production of the item, but about the the production of the physical product itself. Yeah. So like the the metadata that you can read, it's like, you know, only a hundred copies were made of this and it was like an exclusive to the store or like packaged on this website. Like just like the, the absurd amounts of stories that you can find about, you know, a, a rarity of a physical product I think is super, super fun. Huh. Um, and the, so the Wikipedia part of it being that anyone can go on and sort of add a record. You can edit records. You can add more information about it. You can add photos of it. Mm-hmm. You can discuss it. Like there's a community, there's buying and selling of it. So I've, you know, I haven't done it in a while, but I, you know, there was a moment where I, I'd, I'd buy a few records on it. You can uh, maintain your collection. So every, every, album that I own that I've been able to identify and and you can identify them either by scanning the barcode 
or obviously then you've got a lot of records that are pre-barcode era. But I've identified most of my records by the etchings on the actual vinyl itself uh, yes. and added it to my collection. Uh-huh. Um, and except for a select few that are like super local, you know, and just would have never hit a major database. I mean, everything I've been able to catalog most of it and it will even give you like, here's like the value of your entire collection. You know, <laughs> uh, if you were to sell it for average price, I mean, uh-huh. there's all kinds of cool stuff that you can, that you can learn about your collection on it. So that would, that would be it. Uh, it's got open APIs so you can pull your data into other applications. It's, you can be super nerdy with it too. That's, that um, is terribly, terribly cool. I like the idea of that. There was, used to be something called the all music guide. That yeah. was that was I yeah. think kind of my version of that when I was looking at that kind of information. Yeah. But the idea that they're pulling it off the vinyl itself is right. I think really interesting. And it reminds me of um back when I was actually running a non commercial radio station, we got a twelve inch in by Dinosaur Junior. And I think I could be wrong about this, but I think it was their cover of um uh a, a cure song. Um I don't know. And <laughs> so the the flip side of it like the of the 12 inch was just art it was just cool. something that they had scratched in yeah. and pressed and it, it was uh it was really cool it was right around when they were doing the the bug album and um and it was just a, a very cool piece the other thing it reminds me of and this is halloween related a little bit there's a series on shutter called dead wax and the premise of it is it follows a woman who is basically a uh, a, a a will go steal extremely valuable records because she's being paid by collectors to find them. Oh, interesting. And, you know, the ultimate prize she's trying to find is this album that there's supposedly only one copy really in existence and supposedly the only person who ever listened to it went insane. And so, and I just got to the point in it, I haven't watched all of it yet, but I got to the point of it where they're actually saying that this company actually made, and it was a very small company, this guy, basically, there were four records that were connected to this project and if you listen to them all simultaneously, that was, you know, and of course for these people, it's like the sound you're never going to be able to hear again. Yeah. So it was really kind of, you know, it's kind Crazy. of a nice way. There was a 60 minutes piece a couple of weeks ago about, uh, how they, they found out that a couple of, uh, rare Christopher Columbus, like original letters had been like stolen from, uh, like, uh, you know, super rare collections and fabric, whatever was, was still there has been fabricated and replaced and they don't know where, you know, the real ones are or how they've left. It's crazy. Ah. Weird stuff. Yeah. Anyways, Discogs, number one. Discogs, that's You're good. number one. Well, I'm going to really disappoint you because my number one is your number two. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. Although it's actually more the internet archive in general. Okay, yeah. Not specifically the Wayback Machine. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. But I, I love going to the Internet Archive, and it's internetarchive.org, and uh, it's just a, a fabulous treasure trove and an archaeological history of our media, and just every time I go there, I find more and more fascinating stuff, and it's both the idea of it and how it's curated and what actually exists there. So recently in a class, I was showing a, um, a film that was made by Redbook Magazine in, I think, 1968 to try to 
teach their salespeople how to sell ads for Redbook. And mm. it was all based on this like idyllic sense of what living in the suburbs was like. Wow. And it was all, you know, it's, 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 you know, almost all white people and, you know, the, the stay at home moms and trying to get the dogs to stop fighting and the kids to stop fighting and lots of buying of stuff, you know, cause of course Redbook wanted you to be consume, consume, consume. So, but it's, but it's just this amazing little snapshot uh, of an actual like piece of culture. And, and the internet archive is full of that stuff. It's just yeah. full of, uh, educational films uh, from post-World War II all the way up to, you know, as far as I, things that have fallen out of copyright because what they mostly collect is things that are in the public domain. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's easy to download stuff from there. They're, they're sort of, so they're sort of like influenced between something called Project Gutenberg, which was a way to make all uh, public domain texts available. And then kind of the Grateful Dead tape trading network, yeah. which, you know, used to be a way that Grateful Dead fans found right. live performances. Um, so it's, it, it implicitly has a different notion of what intellectual property is, but it's always just a fascinating dive into, you know, some little parts of, of culture, particularly the most paranoid educational films about how uh, comic books and pornography were actually allowing communism to creep into the U.S. Oh, wow. <laughs> so fantastic stuff like That's that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So. My, my most recent uh, reason for getting into the Wayback Machine is I decided that I wanted to put together an archive of every concert that I went to in high school. Uh, for whatever reason, I decided I wanted to get like to create the catalogs. I, Cause I, there's just a lot of shows that like, I, I can tell you, I have like one visual memory in my brain, right. you know? And so I can kind of identify it, but I have no idea of like when it happened uh-huh. or who, like who were the opening bands or who was the band that I was, you know, I know who maybe who I was there to see, but who was also there. Right. So I've been spending a lot of time in like, you know, old venue websites or, uh, even like newspaper, ca- you know, yeah. archives. Any surprises in this digging? Did you surprise yourself? There was one, one show that, um, I, I, which is really surprising that I had a hard time locating, but it was never published. I don't like in my head, I'm like, how did I find out about it? Because I can find no record on the band's website. I can find no record of it on the venue's website. I found one write up or not one mention of it in an upcoming shows section of the Oklahoman. Ah, uh-huh. And that's the only reason I know it existed. And and who was the, who was it that was playing at the show? Uh My Chemical Romance. Ah, okay. And so the the weird thing was is they from my best sense This was back when you spent all your time at Hot Topic, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh but uh it uh they so from I think part of it was it was like a one-off show. I think they had the day off from like a tour they were on. So yeah. like I found the major tour that they were on, but this date's not on it. So I have no idea who else played. That's like the thing that I can't figure uh, out. Yeah. I have I, I know that I went there. I know who I went with and I have a date in a venue now, but I have no sense of anything else. And here's how far I went to try to figure out this question is I did a search on Twitter and I found a couple people, so I did like a location search right. about My Chemical Romance playing at the venue, um, and a couple people mentioned it, 
you know? And so I replied to like these like year old tweets. I was like, Hey, this is really random, but I'm trying to like, remember this. Do you have any idea? And no one can still answer my question. Uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, so there's no, there's no record of, of it actually happening other than one, one little piece in a newspaper that helped me nail down a date. Yeah. Other than that, I can't tell you, I can't tell you anything about it. Yeah, it's so. kind of, yeah, so that, that is an extremely cool little dive. But that's, yeah, yeah finding I probably spend way too much time trying to answer <laughs> questions, but. Well, we do get preoccupied with these things sometimes. Yeah. So. All right. Okay. Well, uh, good luck. Uh, Happy Halloween. Halloween. Happy Halloween to you. And uh, assuming the world doesn't end, we will be back with you shortly. 